Don't Cheat the Deputies. Hello and welcome to Don't Cheat the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. This episode is the third in a series focusing on subject-specific material. Each episode involves speaking to someone who's a specialist in their field, and today we're talking about geography. But before we introduce our guests, Steve, what aspects of geography have you enjoyed teaching at the primary level? Um, For me, I've always had a passion for geography, actually, so this is a particular interest for me, and I do love the book, Making Every Geography Lesson Count. We'll come to that shortly, but um, I studied geography up to A-levels, and it was one of my most passionate subjects, learning as a pupil at school. In terms of teaching it, my passion really resounds around exploring the outside world and how it can connect with a child, and I love to do comparison studies. Um, that are meaningful as well to children and give them a sense of the wider world around them because I don't know about you Russell but a lot of geography seems to hone in on local area studies whereas actually it's great to then grasp the outside world and look at how you can interact with it as well. Um, Field studies, we do the most basic of field studies in primary school but I remember from being at secondary, going to the Alps in France and my eyes opening to, uh, I had a really keen interest in glacial forms, etc. That, that particular experience was really enlightening for me in terms of what I was seeing in the world. I thought, I probably never get an opportunity to do this. Uh, but since I've gone on to visit a Fox Glacier in New Zealand, etc. Because that for me instilled this thing of wanting to know more and see more around the world. And I hope we can like, give that to our children. Steve, you've got me excited with your passion for geography there. I love that. Okay, well, our guest tonight is Mark Enser. Mark is Head of Geography and Research Lead at Heathfield Community College in East Sussex. He's an author of some brilliant books, two of our favourites being Teach Like Nobody's Watching and the one Steve just mentioned, Making Every Geography Lesson Count. And Mark's written numerous articles too. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. Mark, can we start off? Because I feel we have to win over the doubters. Uh, can you start by telling us why geography is an area that you're interested in? Yes, uh, it always amazes me that there are geographical doubters out there, but you're right, I do keep finding them. For me, the reason geography is so exciting is that it changes the way that you see the world. It, it gives you a, a whole new way of, of understanding why the world is the way that it is. You, 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 I mean, and you literally see the world differently. So, like, you know, your example of going to the Alps and 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 seeing the kind of you know, the action of glaciers. So you can stand on a mountain and you can go backwards in time and you can see how it would have looked ten thousand years ago, a hundred thousand years ago, and you can go forward as well. And you can say, okay, what will this scene look like in ten thousand years or a hundred thousand years? You experience cities differently. You go and wander around a strange city, and you see things you would otherwise miss. You understand why it's laid out the way that it is, uh, how the people are using it, how people are moving through the space, because you have an understanding of the geographical principles. So that's what excites me, is its ability to transform the rest of your life. Wow. You two between you, you've got me hooked. I'm loving that. (laughs) I'm loving this. Well, look, we want these subject episodes to feel really relevant, whatever age range you teach. So in our conversation today, we're going to try and sort of cover three things, some principles of great geography teaching, whatever age range you're, you're dealing with, perhaps some common misconceptions in geography, and then some principles of some effective geography design, because a lot of people are thinking about um, their curriculum design at the moment. So let's start off with those principles of great geography teaching, Mark. Where would you like to start with that? I think there's two different ways that you can approach this. So one way is you can look at principles of great teaching and then look at how that applies to geography. So in making every geography lesson count that you mentioned, 
I looked at the six principles from, from the series and then said, okay, what does this look like in a geography lesson? So what does challenge look like in geography? How do we make a challenging lesson or how do we use modeling or feedback or questioning? So I think that's one approach that can be really useful, especially if you're approaching it more as a subject generalist and you understand what good learning looks like anything okay no how do I do this in a geographical way so I think that can be useful I think perhaps another way of looking at it and this is something which I'm looking at in my next book on uh, powerful geography is what's distinctly geographical in a lesson and also distinctly geographical approach to planning your lesson so in geography for instance the role of inquiry is central and I think that inquiry is perhaps had a slightly bad rap over the years when it's been a approached by every subject and every subject was told do inquiry or where it's become conflated with discovery learning so the idea that inquiry is pupils just finding it out for themselves Mm. and discovering it for themselves and that's not what we mean in geography you can have a very structured guided inquiry but a kind of then a, a successful geography lesson would go through those stages where you start off with a really good fertile question that you're trying to answer so a deep geographical question so it might be something um, that, that kind of goes across an entire topic. So if you're looking at uh, South America, for instance, and you've kind of done a bit of a comparative study, you might have kind of a question on why settlements are different in different parts of South America. And you might kind of look at the favelas of, of Sao Paulo and the indigenous uh, settlements in the Amazon rainforest. And so that's kind of your big overarching question is why do they look so different? How does the physical environment create different settlements? And so that's kind of your big question thing. Okay, what's the data that I need to answer it? And then you kind of find the data, present it to the students. And then what do they do with the data? Where's the analysis of the data? Because, you know, geographical analysis is key. So where is that geographical analysis? What conclusions would you reach? And then how do you evaluate those conclusions? And so you go through that inquiry process in a very structured, guided way, but it's still central to the lesson. So I say, I think there's kind of the two approaches. So either you think, what is good? pedagogy how do I apply it to geography or what is distinctive geographical pedagogy and then how do I kind of build that into my lesson I'm really pleased you made that um, distinction there Mark between the sort of general discovery learning uh, mentality and a, a really structured inquiry because I've been really wrestling at primary level with this idea of subject disciplines and in history and geography in particular inquiry is such a key part of thinking like a geography or a historian isn't it and I think I've been waiting for someone to describe it in the way you did then. We're not talking about go Google um, the Great Fire of London in history. We're saying actually there's a process that a historian would go through and actually it's about using reliable sources and that's similar for geography, isn't it? So how would you structure an inquiry like that so that it wasn't just a free-for-all, go find out, use Google? I would take a much more central role in providing that information. I think One thing that that became very confusing, certainly it was the same in secondary when I started teaching, was this idea that if the pupils found it online for themselves or found it in a book for themselves, that was somehow better than them finding it from me as as a teacher who could contextualise it in a useful way for them, Mm. uh, which makes no sense. Either way, that they're not working it out for themselves, they're going to another source of authority, whether that's Google or an encyclopaedia or me, it's still coming from somewhere. So... I would be thinking of myself as a resource in that case and then thinking, okay, so I can firstly, I can just simply give them information and explain things and break things down, or I can go and source information that will be useful to them. I can go and find images that will be helpful, graphs, data, uh, maps, 
And I will put that together in such a way that I can then explain and break apart and question and, and, and use to intrigue them in the, in the question. But I'm not saying you go and find it for yourself because when you do, the stuff that you get back is incredibly mixed. So you either get somebody simply printing off Wikipedia or you get whatever is the first thing they just type the whole question in. So if we were going to use that example <laughs> of, you know, the, the settlements in South America, they just type in, how do the settlements in South America differ? And whatever the first link comes up is, <laughs> that gets looked at. Or you get the kind of really bizarre thing. So I remember doing things where, you know, go and research London and they'd come back at the end of the lesson with reams of information about London, Canada, because that was the first <laughs> thing that got thrown up. So I think what, what I would be doing is thinking, how can I provide the best information possible through me rather than you just go off and find it for yourself? Mm, that's really helpful. You made me think of that great one with them. Um, did you see the one with Drake, the rapper, and Sir Francis Drake? There was an <laughs> example of that when a, a child was, uh, there was some sort of project around someone you admire and they came back talking about the rapper who'd circumnavigated the globe. And they just like, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> Mark, um, can I just pick up on something? You just talked about questioning. I was talking to Russell earlier because one thing that really intrigued me in your book was about posing fertile questions. Mm. And um, something that actually I've been exploring with my own staff is the idea of closed and open questions and the right time to do it, but also having hook questions and something that's so fertile, it, it stems on to a sequence of learning within the lesson. And we always look at what we studied before so we know where we come from and where we're going next. Can you kind of elaborate for anyone that hasn't read the book on the idea of posing fertile questions and their importance within geography? Fertile questions is quite a distinct idea about, about the type of question. So the idea mm. of fertile questions, they should be kind of um, undermining questions. They, they challenge assumptions. They should have a, kind of an ethical dimension to as well. And there's quite a range of criteria for what makes a fertile question. But Essentially, in geography, they're just good geographical inquiry questions. They're, they're rich, deep questions that you need a real body of knowledge to answer. You're not going to, have to answer it with a snippet or a, or a factoid. You're going to, going to really to put together a range of information, preferably from across different topics, in order to reach some kind of answer. So um, an example in my new book that's coming out soon, I um, break down the idea of uh, microclimate. So, you know, in primary, I know there's quite a bit on kind of, you know, climate and, and doing microclimate inquiries. So I think, okay, how do we make that into a fertile question? Mm. So moving from simply beyond why is it hotter on the south side of the school, where the answer is simply because it's on the south side of the school, <laughs> to actually something, you know, why is this area of the school underused in winter? Or how might climate change change the way that we use the school site? So you start building in lots of different layers into mm. your into your inquiry to, to reach that answer so a fertile question should be a really deep powerful meaningful question that you use to structure your your lesson sequence mm. absolutely and um, i think uh, i know again i was looking into the chapters in the book and looking at explanation and uh, how to develop this sticky knowledge because there's a real focus at the moment on the correct balance between skills and knowledge but it's how you can develop the sticky knowledge um, in working memory like and I know you talk about reducing the distractions within a classroom but what I really like is because it's been a real focus again at my own school is the use of the display to be a purposeful display within the geographical topic that you're delivering uh, it's no criticism of teachers but sometimes it's really easy to whack up keywords for the entire year on geography and then 
it becomes more like a wallpaper where children aren't really accounting for what's on there because it's too in your face. It's bombarding overboard. And I really liked your idea of just putting up the essential elements and the key phrases, like have a proper working wall display that you're developing over time. Could you tell us any more about that? Because I think people would be really keen to learn about that. Again, I mean, this, again, you know, is not just a primary issue. The, the same mm. thing comes up in, in secondary all the time. I was working in the school where we were told school policy was to have all the key words for your subject on the wall. I said, well, geography, that's 100 words per year group. You're going to have to build me a bigger classroom. I can't physically do this. So, you know, what, what we do is on my whiteboard, I have the keywords for that lesson up there if I can before the pupils come in I quite like to have it kind of ready but that depends on you know everything mm. else but ideally and then I can kind of pre-teach that vocabulary so you start the lesson you know this is the topic these are the words we're going to use this is what they mean and then I keep referring back to them during the lesson rather than plastering my room mm. with information because you're right you know some pupils will cope fine that and it'll become white noise some pupils that will become a major distraction where they can't stop fixating on those words rather than what's being said if the best case scenario is white noise why have you spent your half-term holiday putting them up (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely and i think if we uh, had a look at misconceptions as well because um that's a key concept i think some some teachers may not be confident enough to explore misconceptions within a lesson. And what are some of the misconceptions we could do with avoiding in geography? Again, two-pronged approach. <laughs> so with misconceptions, you've got kind of two categories. One is the misconceptions about the subject itself. So the idea that geography is everything is a really common misconception. And Alex Standish, who's a geography educator, he, he writes about when potential geography trainees come into university for their like, interview or they're going to go on the PGCE course and he says to them what is geography that's their most common answer is that geography can be everything and he mm. points out that that's a terrible indictment of the university education system they've gone through their degree and still don't know what the subject is because if it's everything it's nothing so I think that's a big misconception or that geography has to be about creating good citizens or geography has to be about trying to change the world or it can't just be a thing in itself that geography in itself is a good thing to know about because it is a powerful thing that's going to just enrich your own life so i think there's those kind of misconceptions and then we get to kind of all the interesting folk knowledge kind of things that are just wrong so the most common one that i think i come up against you know i'm lucky enough to go and work with primary school teachers quite a bit and i love it and I kind of talk about uh, making every geography lesson count and things. And then I say, okay, the common misconceptions, it's hotter on the equator because it's closer to the sun. Really common misconception. And then I go to move on and inevitably I get a dozen worried looks. And, uh, could you just maybe go through <laughs> why it's hotter <laughs> on the equator then? Because it's, it's folk knowledge. And, and I've seen geography mm. teachers, who again, you know, gone through their degree, got their degree in geography, still teaching that misconception because it feels intuitively right because you picture the world as a globe. You think, well, that bit there's closer to the sun. So that must be why it's hotter. It just feels right. Things like uh, rivers run faster up in the mountains, up near the source, and they run slower near the mouth. It feels intuitively right that the river should be going really quickly near the source, down the hillside and near the mouth. It looks like it's moving slower. Of course, if you ever try to cross a stream near a mountain, you know there's not much velocity, there's not much force. You try and cross a river near the, near the mouth and, and you're knocked off your feet. So you've got those kinds of misconceptions. I think there's kind of big ones around countries like you know Africa as a country or that everywhere in Africa is poor, uh, in people live in mud huts, common ones around development, that people can just go and live wherever they want, 
in a lower income country or a newly emerging mm-hmm. economy. So, you know, it, you say, oh, you know, people have to go and collect water from a well and they have to walk miles to get it. And they go, well, why can't they just move closer to the river? It, well, because they don't own the land. <laughs> they can't just move. <laughs> but it's a really common kind of misconception. So I think geography is littered with them, mainly because there's just so many things that just feel intuitively right that actually when you examine them aren't. So, um, Mark, can I pick up on two things you said there? First of all, there are people that once you did the thing about the equator, are sat there thinking he's got he's got to tell me the right answer now. Now, me and Steve, of course, know, but <laughs> just for the sake of our listeners, can you just clarify the explanation of why it's faster at the equator? Just so oh. that we can rid that misconception from the nation's teachers now. I- Really wish I had a whiteboard. This is very hard to do without one, but uh, and without visuals as well, because I'm really only recording sound. Okay, so when the sun comes in, it's hitting the equator uh, straight on. When it's hitting at the poles, it's hitting the curvature of the Earth, and the sun's energy is more spread out. It's more diffuse over a wider area. The sun's energy is having to pass through the atmosphere, uh, and it's going through the atmosphere at an angle, which means less of the sun's energy hits the Earth. So it's due to the curvature of the Earth and the way the sun's energy is spread out. Awesome. I was going to say that, and I thought if I get it you wrong, knew that, didn't you? <laughs> front of Mark Enser, then I'm really embarrassed. But yeah, concentration <laughs> of the sun's energy is where I was going, so I'm pleased about that. Um, you knew the curvature as well, right? I knew about the curvature, <laughs> of course. I know, I know the Earth's round, Steve. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's, yeah, my knowledge is uh, rich enough. Um, uh, the other one, when you were talking about Africa, actually, you made a really pertinent point that um, we were thinking about actually because um, aspects of Africa is uh, quite a big focus of my year four curriculum and. Uh, like we often do in primary where there are good horizontal links across the curriculum we do make links in different things with the English and whatnot and actually we were really really conscious because we use a couple of fantastic books in year four that portray a couple of quite sad stories actually about refugees and whatnot and we were conscious of this kind of moral aspect of our curriculum that do we only reflect one version of the African experience and, and and we've tried really hard to make a few adaptations so that we don't do that so that we do reflect much more developed nations and so on but where do you see sort of like that moral standpoint I mean I'm sort of taking us a little bit onto the next bit about curriculum design but do we have a duty there to cr- kind of create that quite balanced view of these different nations particularly when we're doing kind of locational studies like that I, I think it's critical um I think there's a real danger that we tell a single story. There's a brilliant TED talk, and I wish I could remember the speaker's name at the top of my head. But if you, if you search for TED talk, a uh, single story, it is brilliant. And she talks about the danger of summing up a place as just one thing. Sometimes in geography, we talk about the, the danger of just presenting the headline about a country. Mm-hmm. And it happens a lot in our subject because geographers do use places as examples. So we want to give an example of a place that's going to suffer due to climate change, due to rising sea levels, to talk about Bangladesh as a low-lying country. But if that's the only time you talk about Bangladesh, it simply becomes a place that's going to flood with rising sea levels. You know, we teach uh, a case study on Nepal for earthquakes. And I was really aware a few years ago that our pupils would only hear about Nepal in that context. They would know nothing else about the rich culture of the country and the people who live there and their customs and way of life. And so now we make sure that, that further down in kind of key stage three, we're referring to Nepal and we're using it for other examples. When they get to GCSE and look at the example of the earthquake there, they already know about that country and give it some context. Mm. So I think it's a massive, massive danger. And that is, you're right, it's where curriculum planning comes in because you start saying, well, where else can we talk about this place in different ways? Yeah, great. And we'll get onto curriculum in just a second. Before we do, just thinking further of that particular strand we were just talking about then, do you feel there's a role within geography teaching to make uh, real links with 
people that are based in those countries because uh steve and i have a facebook group you know almost ten thousand members now and they're from all over the world and someone posted not so long ago that they were based in hong kong and they were keen to make a connection with a school elsewhere and mm. hong kong's a unit that we actually do in our school and i was like oh amazing because I've used some really good resources from the Royal Geographical Society, which I think are really, really strong, actually, particularly in the Key Stage 2 section, around stuff about Hong Kong that I wouldn't have known or that I might have guessed or got wrong or found unreliable sources for. But actually, the idea that there's someone tangibly there in the moment I can make a connection with, do you do that much at a secondary level? Absolutely. And again, it is really important and quite difficult to do to find authentic Mm. voices from the places that you're studying. And there's kind of two dangers that we can fall into one is not presenting those voices at all and giving everything from our own perspective and that gives only a very one-sided view of the geography of a place it's it's our perspective of that place and we want to give a range of perspectives of that place the other danger we can fall into is picking a voice from that place as though it's somehow representative when it may not be and so thinking actually we need a range of voices from that place because otherwise we give accessible authority to the one voice we found so you know i think it's a brilliant idea to get in touch with someone from hong kong you know and talk about that in terms of your unit but then being quite cautious that that again is just one person's perspective of that mm-hmm. place uh, would that be different if that person was male or female or a uh, different uh, financial situation or sexuality or a different ethnicity living within that place would would the experience be different that's great, um, actually. And even locationally, yeah. I'm thinking of Hong Kong, which is a great example of where all the islands of Hong Kong are so unique in their identity, aren't they? Actually, even if you just spoke to someone in one of those islands, their perspective. I know most people will move around those islands quite a bit, but they're so distinct, aren't they? Yeah. Somewhere like that. So you're right. No, I think that's really, really helpful. So let, let's take it on to uh, curriculum design, Mark. You know, our audience spans the full, the full age range. And I think it's really healthy. Schools are looking more at curriculum design now and really trying to think through um, sort of progression and, and getting things right. What would be some principles of effective curriculum design for geography? One of the biggest issues is sequencing. I think that because we can get that misconception that geography is everything, there can be a sense that it therefore doesn't really matter what you teach when you just do a bit of this because on the curriculum then you go on to a bit of this then a bit of this and there are no real links between them there's no sense you know that idea of the curriculum means a journey that's where the word curriculum comes from and we should be taking our pupils on a journey through the curriculum towards some kind of end point where they build on what's come before so you know it's not the case that we finish this topic now off we go to the next one. It's okay, we finish looking at this. How does this feed into what comes next? So the example, uh, if I try and use one example throughout, but that, that idea of you know, uh, looking at different types of settlements in South America. So, so that, if you kind of came onto that, well, that might be using your knowledge of uh, the Amazon rainforest, your knowledge of, of Sao Paulo, your knowledge of different settlement structures, maybe some aspects of, of studies of rivers and, and the impact that's had. So that might come after all of these different topics that you're then putting together. And so I think about kind of a tapestry and different threads weaving together to build up a bigger picture. I think that's what we're trying to do in geography. And so sequencing is, is, becomes critical to that because you have to know what's come before so you know what you can use later on. Hmm, that's a great starting point. And what about the amount of stuff? What about the amount of content? That's a challenge, isn't it? Well, I don't know, because I've been doing quite a bit of work recently on the Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2 geography curriculum and and having a look at at how we put it into place and how we put it into practice. And there's not that much in there. 
No, if you not. actually if you actually just look at it as a list, yeah. I mean key stage one is incredibly light. There's almost nothing. There's a few little geographical skills, <laughs> yeah. there's not much more. Mm. Key stage two, rivers, uh, mountains and tectonics, it, and, and there's no depth of coverage. It doesn't tell you what you have to study about those things. And so you can combine things however you want. And so one thing that I think is quite useful is to look at both the content which is given in the curriculum and the national curriculum, but then look at the geographical concepts that sit behind it and how you marry the two up. Mm. And so uh, one thing that I'd, I'd recommend any geography teacher have a look at is a paper by a guy called Jackson uh, from 2006. You have access to the GA, it's available there. Um, and it's fantastic exploration of, of geographical concepts and things like you know space and place, relational thinking, proximity and distance. And these are the things that sit behind the content. So when you're looking at settlements, what about them? You know, what are you, do you actually want them to study about settlements? When you look at rivers, what is it about rivers that's geographical? Naming the world's rivers is not especially geographical, as useful as it might be for, for discussions later on, and you might be able to apply it later on, but that's not in itself geographical. Studying Brazil isn't geographical on its own unless you use it to answer geographical questions. And so I think trying to marry up that the content and the concepts then makes that very limited list of content that much richer. Mm. And primary sort of national curriculum, as you say, it's a bit odd in, in, in that respect in that if you take history, there's a few prescribed units that have to happen. You have to do Roman Britain somewhere, for example, where geography, you're right, there's a lot of the, the more sort of generic bits, but it doesn't tell you how to contextualize it, which if you're quite keen on curriculum design, you're quite keen on geography, probably, you've probably loved that, Mark, getting to play with that because you, you're getting to be quite creative and it's probably quite daunting for schools where they don't have a, a particular specialist. What do you think about trying to marry up? up some of that content with countries and locations and trying to get it so that children get to visit lots of parts of the world sort of metaphorically throughout their journey in in school i think that's a really good idea i think geography uh, there's kind of two big approaches that, that we can take so we can do thematic studies and regional studies so thematic studies are where you study rivers tectonics climate and they're yeah. your themes and then your regional studies is putting them into context and you do you know south america uh, East Africa or, or the UK or uh, your comparison country in, in, in the EU and then that's your kind of region so one thing to try and think about with the curriculum is where the thematic studies come in relation to the regional studies mm. do you want to start by say studying Spain and then going okay we're going to look at Spain and then we're going to look at rivers in Spain the climate of Spain the ecosystems of Spain the mountains of Spain and so on which could lead to quite a shallow understanding of those geographical ideas, but a really in-depth look at the place. Or do you look at mountains and then look at some examples of mountains? Do you look at rivers, then some examples of rivers, look at tectonics, some examples of tectonics, which could lead to a really good understanding of the themes, but then you never really get a good in-depth study of place. Mm. And there is no perfect answer to that question, but it's a kind of a discussion to have and to think about the balance. So what we try to do is we try to do quite a lot of thematic things earlier on and then building towards regional studies. And so as our curriculum progresses through, especially Key Stage 3, Year 7 is very thematic with a few regional studies put in. By the time we get to the end of Year 8, there's some really big substantial regional studies on things like Russia and Haiti, where they use all of the information that they've learned from their themes and relate it to those places. Right. And, and we've been really interested, Steve and I, in, in all aspects of um, curriculum design in terms of where like automaticity of certain facts and knowledge sits in terms of being able to give them a wider access to everything else. So within geography, 
do you think there's stuff that just needs to be known like that at the click of a finger? You know, I guess I'm thinking how many children do sometimes get to after key stage two and they still don't know the difference between a county and a country and what continent they live in and so on. How important is that? Just basic knowledge. It really helps. If you don't have it, it just makes everything else so much more difficult because every time it's mentioned, you then have to use your precious working memory to try and think about the things that have been said. Whereas if someone says to you, oh, you know, uh, which continent are we looking at here? And they immediately go, okay, there's the seven continents, which one's this? It just makes their lives easier. And it makes everything else more relaxed, makes learning more pleasurable. So just generally, the more knowledgeable you are, the more pleasurable mm. you find learning. If you don't know very much, learning's a hard slog. Where does that sit in the curriculum design then? Does that sit within particular units or does that sit as kind of like retrieval practice at start of lessons? Like where would you put that, so to speak? Think about these kind of, they're not quite threshold concepts, but they're probably closer to it. So that kind of real fundamental knowledge we need people to have is something I would look to teach very early on in the curriculum itself Mm. and then to revisit frequently. So things like that, they come up all the time. So we should be revisiting in lessons anyway. And so they make perfectly good little starter quizzes and things because why not? Nice little way to settle the class and do some retrieval practice. But I still think they they need to be threaded into into the actual curriculum so they occur at natural intervals. And then you go, okay, you know, you should now know your continents. So let's just check that you do before we go on to study this thing, which relies on the knowledge of continents or, you know, the basics of the water cycle. So much of rivers and weather and climate relies on the basic of the water cycle. So let's do that early on. And then let's make sure whenever we revisit it, we just check that knowledge is actually there and can be used. Nice. Thank you. Mark, can I just jump in and ask a quick question? Knowing that you're coming from a secondary point of view of geography, how well prepared do you think the primary pupils are in stepping into key stage three geography then? Oh yeah, thanks. There goes my Twitter notifications. <laughs> we, we weren't planning on asking that. He's just throwing you under the bus. Sorry. <laughs> it, honestly, it varies massively. It, it, mm. You know, we have a huge number of, of different schools that are kind of our feeder schools and most of them are brilliant and, and they've clearly got some incredible primary school teachers with a deep love of geography and you can find those pupils because they come into lessons they know what geography is which is always a tell because mo- yeah. a lot of geography students don't know what the subject actually means but they come in and they can tell you what geography is and they've got this great knowledge and they've studied some places in depth and they've got it and you can after being at school for a while you can start to identify not only which school they came from but which primary school teacher they had in that school wow. yeah you had mr so-and-so or you had Miss so-and-so <laughs> because you know i can tell other pupils come up woefully underprepared mm. because they just mm. didn't have that that curriculum in place. And, and often they come up not really knowing what geography is and having a very odd idea that geography is, is the study, is looking at maps, looking at flags and knowing where places are. That's all they can tell you geography is. And if you probe them a bit, they can say something like, oh yeah, we did geography, we did a topic on Egypt. Mm. But they don't know any geography about Egypt, they just know that they did it. Hmm. And so it is a mixed picture. Uh, you know, we're very lucky with our feeder schools. Um, uh, yeah, school schools I've taught in the past, they'd come up and, and there was nothing really. Hmm. But I also don't know how much of that's a change. You know, since uh, the new offset frameworks come in hmm. and people are expected to have a greater idea of curriculum, perhaps there's been that shift. Whereas in the past, there was that focus on just drill for the SATs, especially in year six. Hmm. And there wasn't that focus on geography. And, and so they weren't coming in with it. So it is a mixed picture. 
I mean, mm. I can only talk from my own experience, Mark, but a couple of things come to mind. The first is that it's never individual teachers' fault if children come through without that that secure knowledge. It's leadership. And as a leader myself, I take that on the chin myself if they're coming through with those gaps because it can't be the job of individual teachers to understand a seven-year journey in a child's uh, sort of journey of geography. That is leadership. The second bit that I wanted to say was about the, you used the word topic there. And uh, that was something we kind of had to eradicate from our school. And it's not because topic is an evil word, but it was being used generically by children about every subject they did in an afternoon. And, you know, I think primary schools have to make a decision about how important are subject specific disciplines to them at that age. And for us, it was really important. We do want them to get what geography is and that it is distinct from history. And while it's always going to be a special part of the primary school identity that we make horizontal links across the curriculum where they exist meaningfully I like Claire Seeley's uh, work on this of course we'll make those links but I do want them to know when they're talking about I don't know Egypt in its historical context or in its geographical context so uh, yeah I think I think you hit the nail on the head there that's a very diplomatic response as well very very (laughs) nicely done well look mark i've i've loved talking to you about geography and uh between you and steve you've got me really fired back up actually going back into school and thinking about geography particularly you with your glaciers there steve mark (laughs) really really grateful for your time and i think people will enjoy um there's a real clarity and precision about the way Mm. you explain things that i find really useful so thank you we're aware that you've just bought yourself out another book with zoe and sir can you tell us a little bit about that i know it's a bit off topic but it seems a shame not to ask you about it oh thank you that's very kind <laughs> so the book's on generative learning which was some research by uh, logan fiorella and richard meyer and it looks at what makes um, effective learning so a lot of schools have done work on rosenshine and kind of principles of effective pedagogy in instruction this says when the teacher stops talking what can the pupils do to actually secure what they've learned and so we were lucky enough to have some fantastic primary case studies from people like uh, Keridan Eccles and Tajin Gill, and then Tim Taylor who does kind of mantle of the expert so they're kind of their case studies in there as well so we're very keen to get that primary perspective on the idea so yeah it's going down very well which, which we're we're very happy about that's great yes oh I look forward to that thank you so much Mark really good chat that really good oh, not just because I'm a geography fun. geek at heart <laughs> <laughs> nice talking to you Deputy the deputy.